Welcome everybody to Learn With All. Today we're joined with Jacob Ede, postdoc at UCSF, did psychedelic research with the TRI program. He'll soon be a faculty member at the University of Michigan. He has over 20 plus publications centered around psychedelics. Jacob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sweet. So one of, the, yeah, one of the cool things that I thought you wrote about, which was separate than what I've seen other psychedelic researchers write about, is you, you, you delve into the historical context that most people would not know. Like you talk about the history of it. So um, even one called the psychedelic zeitgeist, which makes it really easy to you know understand your problem, fun with it. So what has been the psychedelic zeitgeist for the last 50 years? Yeah, for the last 50 years, um, uh, there's been a quite variable psychedelic zeitgeist. I would say there's probably two distinct um, psychedelic zeitgeists, one beginning in the mid 20th century, and then one beginning at the beginning of the 21st century here. Um, so in the mid 20th century, researchers became pretty excited, pretty excited about psychedelics after World War II. Um, there was some early research into, into psychedelics before World War II, specifically into mescaline, which is the, hmm. the principal uh, psychoactive alkaloid in peyote, the peyote cactus. Uh, but a lot of that died out with World War II. You know, the researchers either went to war and died or, you know, had their um, work diverted to other um, other avenues. And so that research kind of died out after World War II. But um, in the early 40s, a uh, Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman um, was, you know, uh, generating a bunch of new chemicals for this company um, named Sandoz. And one of them was called lysergic acid dithylamide 25. Um, it was the 25th in an iterative series of lysergic acid dithylamides that he made. And he made it in 1938 originally, uh, didn't really find anything that notable with it, um, put it on the shelf. And then in 1943, he just had this weird intuition that he should return to LSD 25. And um, and he, yeah, he pulled it off the shelf and he was studying it again. And he got a little bit, a little bit of it on his skin and he hmm. experienced some weird sensations. And so... Um, he just decided to do a self-experiment with the, the compound, and he administered, I think it was 200 micrograms. I don't want to say exactly, 200 micrograms of LSD, somewhere a pretty sizable dose of LSD. Um, um, and yeah, that, when that became what's known as the first acid trip, the first LSD trip, and um, he you know documented the effects, and um, in short order, you know, the company that he, he was working for, Sandoz, began making LSD um, freely available to clinicians and scientists to to study it. And they, you know, they gave it out and it began being studied in therapy during the 1950s. And um, there's a lot of really promising work during that decade on psychedelic therapy for you know, depression, alcoholism and um, end of life distress. A lot of the same indications people are studying psychedelics for today. Um by the 1960s, you know, the, the chemicals had really gotten out of the laboratory and uh, became pretty closely associated with, you know, the hippie movement and the anti-war movement. And, you know, Richard Nixon famously, you know, um, said something along, along the lines of, you know, he couldn't make hippies illegal, but he can make the things that they liked illegal, included mm -hmm. psychedelic drugs. And so, um, so there became a pretty swift prohibition of psychedelics and psychedelic research and uh, was pretty much completely dormant for a couple decades through the 70s and the 80s um and then during the 90s we had kind of the the first kindlings of the, this new psychedelic renaissance um 
Dr. Rick Strasman at um, University of New Mexico began doing some research with DMT um, and then dimethyltryptamine, which is a pretty potent psychedelic. And, um, you know, <laughs> he kind of snuck it in uh, through the FDA, you know, he under the guise of, you know, of um, using DMT in a kind of psychotomedic way, you know, using it to model psychosis in patients and to better understand mm. psychosis and um, you know, it, DMT didn't have the same baggage that things like LSD did. You know, people didn't know necessarily what DMT was in the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, he did the first, you know, human psychedelic study um, in the mid 90s that had been done since, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, that was successful and it was human subject or healthy subjects and, you know, no serious adverse events or anything. And um, so by the late 90s, um, in early 2000s, some researchers at Johns Hopkins um, decided to, you know, do the next psychedelic study of this era, which was a psilocybin study for healthy volunteers. And um, it took them a really long time to get the permission. Psilocybin is the active component in magic mushrooms. Um, over 200 species of mushrooms, of, of psilocybe mushrooms are found and uh, found all over you know, North America and, and many different parts of the world. Uh, but they did the first modern study of psilocybin in the early 2000s. Uh, like I said, it took a long time to go through all the DEA and FDA hurdles mm -hmm. and get the study um, finished and published. It came out in 2006. And they had pretty remarkable findings. Um, you know, in this group of healthy volunteers, two thirds of people rated this psilocybin experience as one of the top five most ex meaningful experiences of their entire lives. Um, things up there with things like, you know, having a child or the death of a parent, you know, things that are like that life changing to an individual. And there are also pretty long term changes in well being as well that they documented. And this is the study that really kickstarted the modern era of psychedelic research and uh, the long term changes in well being made them think, you know, hey, if these people, you know, just feel better um, after this psychedelic therapy, uh, maybe we should try for you know, clinical disorders like depression, maybe they will feel better as well. And and uh, specifically, they started with cancer patients um, who had depression or anxiety associated with their terminal illness. And um, again, they found pretty robust and positive findings in this group that uh, people had pretty enduring long-term um, reductions in their distress related to their death and their um, their, their their cancer diagnoses and um, and. Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty remarkable findings again here. And so, and then ever since then, there's kind of been this gold rush of, you know, both pharmaceutical investment and academic universities getting in to see, you know, what else can psychedelic therapy be useful for? And at the moment, it's ba basically being explored for um, every psychiatric indication you could pretty much imagine. Um, mm -hmm. You can get into that, get into those more if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's a, it's a great overview of the, um... When you were mentioning the the stuff, you know, when it sat on the shelves in the 20s, 30s, and then they were reintroducing LSD 25 um, in the the 50s, it made me think of the book, The Immortality Key, The Immortality yeah. Key, where like mm -hmm. it looks like, you know, uh, psychedelics has been a part of our species for some time, and um, which is which is kind of wild if you think about it. Like one of religion and a lot of these other constructs that we hold dear uh, have some underpinning it in that way and i don't think it invalidates it i think it just it's just it's an interesting from a historical standpoint no um, i appreciate you mentioning that yeah i um i guess i 
started the history with like the the clinical research specifically yeah. psychotherapy, but it's important to mention that yeah these have a long history of indigenous use and um you know a lot of people you know have kind of held the torch for psychedelics you know during ten, times of intense prohibition and you know at, the, at great personal risk at a lot of times including a lot of indigenous populations and um you know when spanish conquerors came and um, you know, 1400s or whatever, um, you know, a lot of indigenous people had to use psilocybin in secrecy. And so, um, you know, it was largely forgotten about, about among non-native Westerners until like the late 1800s or so. And a lot of people even thought that psilocybin mushrooms were like a Native American myth for a long time, that they never mm. even existed, you know, that they were this, you know, this magical thing that didn't really exist, but it was just kind of a story among Native Americans. And um, actually, yeah, the... The scholars who had made that point that maybe they didn't exist kind of were the ones that were responsible for reigniting interest in, you know, um, psilocybin mushrooms at all. And they got researchers, anthropologists going down to Mexico and observing, uh, you know, um, some native populations there and verifying that indeed that there were mushrooms that were making them hallucinate and having pretty, you know, transcendent experiences. Mm -hmm. Would you ever be interested in doing any ethnobotany like that where you go down to the amazon or you go down to meet indigenous tribes and just seeing it through their eyes like i think ethnobotany is one of those things where it you know on one hand just like writing down everything that happened as they believe it is so valuable because there are people there are entire civilizations that are being that are going extinct right now because the last few people who know know them are, are dying but uh what do, you, what do you think about ethnobotany and and you know your interest in it yeah i would love to do something like that and i'd actually um yeah it's it's you know it sounds really exciting it's kind of like the like the stereotypical scientific expedition you know <laughs> you know you would see in you know a movie or something you know you go down to the amazon and study something exotic yeah um yeah i would love to do something like that and actually intended to for my dissertation um hmm. where we had, i had collaborated with an ayahuasca retreat in costa rica and um yeah they allowed me to contact their attendees and give them surveys um really related to things like gratitude and their relationships with nature and their engagement with art and aesthetic experiences um before and after the, the retreat and um this is around 2020 and so um in 2020 you couldn't really travel anywhere you couldn't go across international borders or anything and so unfortunately uh the timing of my dissertation didn't mm -hmm. really work out and i didn't get to go down there but I was able to still, you know, give the surveys virtually, fortunately, and still able to do the project, but, and, but I didn't get to go down there and, you know, get the full experience and, you know, really see what was going on. Like I would have liked to, um, but fortunately they actually filmed a documentary there. So I was like, wow, it's pretty lucky. Yeah. Like I can't go down there, but yeah, it's pretty, that's a, it's a nice alternative to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the, to... what's the documentary called? Uh, I'll, I'll have to watch it. I'd have to look it up. If you Google okay. you know, Sultara, um retreat center documentary it should come up retreat. yeah okay sweet i'll check it out after this the, yeah. uh um yeah uh, we had a, a person on here named uh drea burbank who's down in i believe uh columbia and she's working on making um she's working on uh carbon credits and and creating alternatives for loggers and other indigenous people in the, uh, the community so they can build uh sustainable um businesses you know for the indigenous people and everyone else you know for the, the planet and for them as well uh but they're they do uh i don't know the term for this but it's like uh tourism for psilocybin 
type stuff psychedelics where you can go down there and you can meet with the shamans and stuff uh, yeah. i think that's one thing that they're they're working and exploring but yeah if you if you want to go uh dre if you're listening in or you know <laughs> we can uh, you know facilitate <laughs> that uh that inquiry because i think they do want they do want uh scientists to go down there and research it because it it's such an untapped potential there's so much uh human civilization like down there that it's just waiting to be brought to everybody else that'd be pretty cool yeah that'd be amazing yeah if you could um help us connect yeah because yeah i'm trying to form as many relationships as it can with those kind of retreat centers because it's such a such a useful and resourceful you know way to study psychedelics you know with these clinical trials they they're so expensive um you know it's like a 20 person clinical trial is about a million dollars like fifty thousand dollars per participant yeah unreal amounts of money and for my dissertation study um you know we collected data from like 80 people and um, it costs like five hundred dollars. <laughs> it's like the the scale differences in terms of cost are just unreal. Of course, there's you know more you know research limitations with doing these naturalistic designs, but in terms of you have to kind of weigh the the costs and benefits of each design in terms of cost benefit. You can get a lot out of those those studies, even though there's there's some limitations. Yeah. What is it? The most expensive part that makes it fifty thousand? Just the the medical infrastructure that you have to have there in case something bad happens in the clinical trials. Like what what makes it the fifty thousand? Yeah, yeah. Primarily the the staffing and the, yeah. the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's a very involved process getting involved in these clinical trials. You know, you go through um, extensive screening to begin with. You know, you 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 know, you typically you know have a phone screening to begin with with the clinical research coordinator. Um, you talk with them and then you come in for in-person screening, you meet with a doctor, you know, you, you have your blood draws and you have, um, a physical done, which is, you know, costs money. And, um, you know, there's, you meet with a therapist, you know, for hour and a half, a couple times before the first dose therapist time is very expensive. Um, typically there's two therapists as well. So double that. And then on dosing days, you know, it's a very long day, eight hour days for, which is very an atypical therapy session, you know, it's much longer than a typical therapy session and accordingly costs much more as well, especially with, um, again, the two therapists there at the same time. And, um, and then, you know, you also have, you know, the, the, the PI, the principal investigator, the postdocs, the grad students, the people help coordinate things, help analyze the data, help write the papers. Yeah. Um, you know, we usually we have like a neuroimaging neuroimaging team on most studies. You know, who are collecting things like MRI and EEG. Um, you know, before and after people go through these experiences. Um, um, clinical assessors as well to you know screen them at the beginning to see if they have any you know psychiatric disorders. So yeah, it's mostly staff staff costs. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of a lot of infrastructure infrastructure built into it. Yeah, which the real issue for the field. You know, at the moment it's not really a scalable model. Um, you know, at the moment, you know, most people can't even get good access to typical psychotherapy. So this very, um, you know, this very supercharged psychotherapy with all these bells and whistles added on is really doesn't, it's really hard to see how it's going to be accessible anytime soon with, with the way things are. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, in the Midwest where, where we're, may or may not be from the, yeah. uh, I, I just remember i'm not i, I shouldn't dox people but... oh, no worries yeah <laughs> pretty open about it yeah people look at my resume and they're like huh northern michigan central michigan yeah <laughs> yeah okay uh all the same no 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 one be weird the, so in the midwest <laughs> they started closing down mental health clinics and the biggest some of the biggest people as a population that went to them were veterans and so then they had to go to hubs like chicago madison iowa city some of these you know and it's like oh that makes sense you go to these hubs but it's like two to three hours 
like one way yeah. for someone to get help. And so, I mean, I was in the hospital once. I was uh, on the way to go to the ICU myself. And there was a person who was, uh, was just having an episode. And they were, they were going from like, they were going from like really manic to just pleading with the, the police officers just surrounding them, you know, crying like, I'm not trying to hurt anyone. I'm not trying to do anything. I just, I, I, I want to get help or whatever. And they were just like, the cops, you could tell by their body language and how they were talking to the guy, it wasn't their first time. Not yeah. just with him, but with people like this. And they're just like, they don't know what to do. The guy is just saying, I want help. And the ner- the the hospital staff is like, our policy says we call the cops when this guy acts this way or like people act that way. And it's like, right. you create the scenario where I think there was a chart that someone put where it's like, as the hospitals to help people decreased, uh, the prison population increased. Mm-hmm. And granted, like we've had COVID, we have all these different things. There could be other stressors going on. There's, I mean, it's a very complex equation there. But I just wonder how many people are being treated by being locked into boxes which is like the worst like that's like 200 300 years ago yeah Yeah. i mean at one point in time there were bedlams and stuff where we used to lock mentally ill people in cages in the in the dark and the innovation there was hey maybe if we didn't lock them in the dark we treated them like humans clean them up and listen to them they would do better it's like wow what an earth-shattering idea and it feels (laughs) it feels like this this approach with mental illness nowadays is it's like pseudo like that like a prison is in many ways like just being locked in the dark and forgotten and not get the yeah, help you need. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a, you know, a big movement um, to deinstitutionalize, you know, mental health and, you know, move people out of, you know, mental hospitals because of the issues you, met, you mentioned, you know, people were kind of locked up in cages and mistreated a lot of the times. And in the 1950s, we kind of had a, a pharmacological revolution where things like antipsychotics were suddenly on the, um, you know, sudden, suddenly in play and they, they weren't an option before. And, you know, they helped people enough where they thought that they could close, you know, all these mental hospitals. And, um, but the issue was, you know, it, you know, they kind of just, yeah, like you said, people either ended up in the streets or in jail if they, um, you know, weren't properly medicated. And, you know, a lot of times the medication stopped working after a while. And, you know, um, yeah. So yeah, there's definitely been issues with institutional institutionalizing people, but yeah, you know, there's, a, I think a place for it as well in some cases. And, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like you said, some people are probably better off getting that help than just being left to suffer on their own on the street or yeah. in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the, I think most insurances will cover like a yearly health checkup. I wonder what it would be like if like every year you take all of the United States could take one, one day and like a schedule, whatever, right? You take one day where you get your physical examinations, get whatever, and you have like three meetings with a psychologist leading up to it. And, you know, if you have to do like, you know, some more deep, um therapy like what psychedelics can do you can just all hit that in one day you get one day off the you know to get everything taken care of it's one day dedicated to you how much more productive and ha- happy would people be with just a simple <laughs> thing you know not does everyone need psychedelics no i don't i think um actually i'll just put that to you i don't think everyone needs psychedelics i think it's like really for more severe stuff yeah no i don't think psychedelics are for everybody and i think yeah some people are going to be worse off for taking psychedelics than if they hadn't taken psychedelics you know and you know, that's a, you know, a big issue or, you know, big question for the field right now is, you know, how do you, how do you tell that? How do you predict that? Who's, who's going to be a good candidate for psychedelics and who's going to be, you know, a bad one. And right now it's pretty, pretty rudimentary in terms of our able ability to predict how people are going to react to psychedelics, you know, that we know we have the screening where, you know, we exclude people for cardiac, cardiac conditions, because we know that the drugs acutely increase, you know, heart rate and blood pressure. We don't want to trigger a heart attack or, or anything like that. And somebody who's sensitive to something like that. And we know we, we screen out people with, you know, a personal or family history of, you know, bipolar or schizophrenia, you know, just out of abundance of caution, um, you know, 
out of worry of, you know, triggering some kind of manic episode or some kind of psychotic episode. Um, you know, those those rules have been in place, like I said, out of abundance and caution, because, you know, this is a very sensitive topic and field and researchers had to be very careful when starting their studies. You know, they'd be, um, you know, very you know, particular about who they were giving these drugs drugs to or not. And so there's, you know, anecdotes about, you know, people with, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, having adverse reactions to psychedelics, but it's really hard to tell what the true prevalence is. And, um, you know, we're actually doing a study here at UCSF right now for people with bipolar type two um, disorder and, and using psilocybin therapy in them. And the thinking being that, you know, bipolar includes both manic states and depressive states, um, and so we're going to try to treat the, the depressive aspect of the bipolar type two, given the, you know, the accumulating evidence for psilocybin therapy and depression, um, type two bipolar is the less severe variant or version. You know, there's two, there's type one, type two, um, type one includes full-blown mania and, you know, full-blown depression type two involves hypomania, which is, you know, um, as the word would imply a less, a more milder form of mania. And so we're starting with this, you know, less severe populations, less vulnerable population. Um, and it's really the first, you know, systematic clinical investigation into, you know, psychedelics in that population. But um, up until now, you know, we've been pretty careful about who we give it to because we know it's not for everybody, but it's been, um, you know, very hard to disentangle what's myth and misinformation from yeah. you know, you know, true evidence, given the, you know, the moral panic around psychedelics in the mid 20th century, as well as, you know, just how hard it is to study psychedelics, you know, given the, um, given their, you know, very robust psychoactive effects, it makes it hard to do double blind trials on their benefits as, you know, some of my papers have gone into, but on the other side of that coin is it's very hard to tell what's true of their negative side effects as well. Yeah. The, would it be, what, what benefit could there hypothetically be for treating the the hypermania as well. I imagine from what I understand of psychedelics, I don't I'm really boring, so I don't drink or do anything fun. But from <laughs> what I understand, like it, it gives you like context and it makes your brain more moldable. Like I think that's like a lot of ways people describe it to me, like it makes it more elastic. Um, but uh like it returns it to a state of plasticity, I think. But the if if it if it could work in the down state, I wonder if it could work equally as well in the up state when you have hyperma hypermania to like to give context, but I'm, I'm wondering, do you think it would do anything there? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Like I haven't heard any evidence of it. I know that mm. our lab has done some, it's done some research into this. I haven't been involved with, um, mm. by, by, um, surveying like Reddit posts and things like that. And looking for people who mention that they have bipolar and, took psilocybin um as well as you know sending out um surveys to like you know you know bipolar research organizations and things like that and they'll send out the surveys to their um their clientele and um assessing you know their psychedelic use and their symptoms i'm not sure to be honest though what the what the findings of that were i know yeah. that that's the first kind of like initial um exploration of that area that it's, it's going on right now yeah yeah well it, it makes me think of this idea where it's like if someone's if, if someone's unwell but they're happy, you know, no one really says anything, but one if, like, if, if you just went around smiling the whole time, but you have something going on, uh, if it could still be addressed in a healthy way, like maybe there's something there, like if you could have bipolar, um, but you know, like in, in the way that you're addressing it, for instance, like it's a, a just addressing the downside of it, like when you're really depressed, which makes sense, right? Like there's some really bad stuff that'll happen when you're in that state, but there's also 
stuff that'll happen if you're like hypermania. I mean, I, I'm thinking of like more of the mild form where you're just like having a good day, like not the hyper hypermania. But um, <laughs> I wonder if like uh, maybe that's a component of it as well. It's like oh, you're energetic and having a great day, or something, and you're just really excited to do stuff. Like I wonder if that like uh, doesn't trigger people to think like oh, this is something that we should research versus something as as compelling as depression. Like everyone, see, if you see someone depressed, like there's every mirror neuron in our whole body in our brains that says like. I want to help that person. Like, I understand that sadness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, yeah, it kind of gets back to like, we have a much better understanding of depression than mania. I feel like just because it's so much more prevalent. And so, yeah. um, you know, so we, yeah, we've seen some mechanisms that, you know, predict changes in depression with psychedelic therapy, including things like mystical type experiences where people, which are characterized by people having this, you know, transcendence of time and space, this, you know, ineffability, they can't, describe it in words is very positive mood um loss of time um i already said that um and so those those types of experiences predict changes in depression as well as experiences of you know extreme insight during the the psychedelic state and i don't know that those two mechanisms that have been identified um for improving depression symptoms you know i don't know if there's any reason to think that would improve those would improve manic mm. symptoms necessarily um you know you're, there's yeah i guess it, it gets, gets gets back to my own kind of ignorance of what causes mania anyways yeah, yeah. I don't really know the mechanisms involved yeah <laughs> do do you think it's uh just perception in terms of the brain kind of like how i perceive dreaming is just to be this like this uh emergent phenomenon we do to remain remember like train our, ourselves on what we experienced that day and then rest and repair for the next day where and and like people like people aren't actually like breaking out of the four dimensions that we exist in and going to like a fifth or higher dimension, which is I think mathematically like there are other dimensions that you could go to. <laughs> I think like time, if like the, a scientist said that if we understood time well enough, it would be like driving around like we don't understand it so well. Um, <laughs> do do you think like do you think the the brain has the capacity to to do what people perceive it to be doing, or is it just kind of like dreaming where they think they're they're doing what they think they're doing? Yeah, that's it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, um I guess it depends on what you mean exactly. Like if you if you mean like, you know, I, I know sometimes with like DMT specifically, people mm. you know, report being in this like altered reality in this like hyperspace reality where they, they're actually able like to interact with entities and mm. um and you know say that they're like able they're very sure that these are real sentient beings and like that they like they they veridically exist um outside of their head um i i don't think that there's any evidence to to suggest that that is true i know yeah, of. yeah. um you know well, I, was, I was referring more to like this uh perception of being like out of time uh, like I out see. of time and space yeah like yeah. the, the the hexagonal aliens or whatever people did report yeah i feel like uh it's separate i was just wondering yeah. about the yeah perception of uh the four dimensions yeah that specifically um yeah i would i would think that would just be it's very unlikely that they actually transcend those dimensions yeah more likely that they're that they're you know, neural processes that support mm -hmm. processing of those um of those things is probably altered by the drug yeah that would, yeah. That would be suspicion yeah <laughs> It'd be wild if it was true, though. If yeah. uh, well, I, I also think it's kind of wild that you know the animals that were like you know uh, just needed enough mathematical computation, like throw a stick at something to knock it out and eat it, could do calculus. Like such like our brains are just so cool like that way. But yeah, uh, that always blows my mind too. Yeah, just like how much math goes into just you know catching a ball or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And and humans <laughs> are the best 
throwers in, in the animal kingdom. Like no, no one can throw like us. Uh, but anyway, so for, for I know uh, that. yeah, yeah, no, Learn no one can throw like here. us. And uh, we also are, we can like run without. We can like keep going forever. We're like the Energizer Bunny of the Animal Kingdom. Yeah, <laughs> have the most endurance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like people, I think there's even competitions now where people uh, will like try and run down a horse or something. Like they'll just they'll just slowly like a, a deer or a horse will eventually just give up and sit down, and they're just like, "All right, I got you," and they you know give up. <laughs> but for uh, for adverse effects, do you think it's possible to ever get it to the point where we understand it well enough where there won't be any adverse effects? Well, I guess. I, the extreme of that, like if you understood it perfectly, then yeah, there would never be any adverse effects. But in the sense of, do you understand like what causes the adverse effects? Like what 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 further research needs to happen to understand the causes to the point where we could, uh, if you're suffering bipolar and you still have like those um, an adverse history, there's a way to uh, administer it where you wouldn't have those problems per se. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so yeah, it's very unlikely we'll ever completely get rid of adverse effects just mm. like with any other drug yeah um you know every drug is always going to have risks you know the the challenge is always to weigh the risks and benefits and to to figure out how to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks and um and you know seem to have developed a pretty good method for minimizing risks and maximizing benefits with this general psychedelic therapy model um you know in clinical trials pretty regularly reliably and robustly you know people are you know experiencing improvements in mental health overall and overall well-being um at least for some time after these psychedelic experiences and you know there have been you know you know and the things that we do in these trials to to facilitate that and to to you know put scaffolds in place include the screening that i alluded to before um meeting with the therapist beforehand you know establishing rapport talking about expectations you know, um, you know, going through psychoeducation about psychedelics so that you understand what you're getting into, um, and developing like that trust with the psychotherapist is very important. Um, and having them present during the dosing session, doing it in a safe space that's, um, you know, kind of cut off from the outside world that you can really let yourself go in. That's really important. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't want to, you know, we have to worry about did you leave the you know did you leave the oven on is there a candle going that my cat's going to knock over or is there you know um to lock the door things like that you, it's 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 really important to actually have people in place to hold the space you know i think that's mm. um can't be overlooked cuz having somebody there to really hold the physical space really allows you to let go psychologically and to really um you know really just focus yourself on the inner experience which is the key here you know that's why we have people put eye shades on during the experience and you know they put headphones on and we really encourage them to go inward and you know so doing all that and then uh meeting with the participant afterward to and during what's called integration sessions to 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 make meaning of the experience and to to integrate those insights that they had during the dosing session into their everyday lives going forward so that they can, you know, make long-term changes. And so, you know, with all that scaffolding in place, you know, we've really been able to minimize the, the adverse effects um, in these trials. You know, some people, you know, rebound in their depression and um, anxiety symptoms after some time, you know, that's been, that's definitely been seen, you know, they've, like, they're better for three months and they jump back up a little bit. Um, but they're still below where they were at baseline generally. Mm. So, um, 
So people seem to be very much better for some period after the dosing session and come back a little bit, but are still you know, better than they were before. Um, it seems to be a, a pretty common trend. Yeah. Um, there seems, seems to be this. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just, I was just, I think you're going to answer the question I have, which is, I wonder, you know, what's, if someone's studying it or what is degrading to let it go back up, you know, like where it's, it's kind of, it sounds like when you take an antibiotic and it's in your system for a bit and slowly starts getting out of your system and then you have to take another one to keep it in there to work out the illness. Um, right. So it's very interesting. Like it's, it's a similar type of like seesaw effect. Yeah, that was a good point. Yeah. And it, I should say that it varies a little bit by diagnosis and by psychedelic mm -hmm. drug a little bit. You know, it seems like with like the MDMA therapy for PTSD, people do seem to have pretty enduring changes in their PTSD symptoms. You know, the psilocybin therapy for addictions and, you know, alcohol and tobacco misuse, you know, people tend to stop using and continue to stop using. You know, it's a very objective thing to measure, you know, if are you using alcohol or tobacco or not? Um, mm -hmm. You can even, you know, measure it in there their urine or saliva if you want to as well um those things seem to be maintained but like the the mood changes with like depression that seems to be the thing that kind of bounces back a little bit over time um at least in the the few trials that have kind of monitored long-term long longitudinal changes yeah yeah but do we do we know um why it bounces back do we have hypotheses as to why it bounces back like that yeah that's a good question um i don't know that there's you know very you know, prevailing hypotheses on that issue in the field, I would say, you know, there does seem to be this kind of afterglow period after psychedelic mm -hmm. experiences where people are really reinvigorated, you know, they, you know, they have just had this, you know, oftentimes beautiful experience, they, you know, you know, re-see the beauty in life, they have this very positive memory they can look back on. And um, I think memories just kind of fade a little bit over time, mm -hmm. you know, you, you know, those insights to some degree last, but you know, the, the full meaning and the, the full feeling, you know, among with the meaning behind it um can kind of can kind of wither away a little bit over time it seems like yeah whereas with like these behavioral changes you know stopping smoking and stopping drinking you know they just don't pick it up again you know um it's mm. interesting a little bit different yeah yeah I, I was, i'm just wondering like um what difference i'm thinking of like uh when alcoholics for instance like a, a lot of times it, people will move because being in that house, being near the habits, near the, all the triggers is pretty bad for them. Uh, as one example, I wonder if, if there was one person, one group that was, you know, given everything and the scaffolding to keep going forward and one that was, you know, given like, Hey, you're supposed to do, but like allowed to go in their natural habitat again, <laughs> like what would be the differences of those two things? Would it prolong the decline or, you know, um, or, 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 you know, I'm just curious like what that would do to it. Yeah, 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 it's a good point. And yeah, it brings up this other point of, you know, clinical trials have an endpoint always, you know, yeah. we, we have to stop giving them treatment at some point, which isn't, you know, necessarily how it works in the real world, you know, you can you know, keep having follow up, you know, sessions every month or whatever with your therapists or a couple times a year, whatever you need to do um, to maintain your changes in the real world, both clinical trials, you know, they stop and they, you know, just by their very nature have to have an end, very clear um, focused endpoint. So, yeah, you know, that's, you know, one thing that will be interesting to explore, um, you know, as these things are rolled out in, you know, phase four, you know, post approval, um, you know, how people, you know, manage the post integration process and how those, you know, are related to to long term changes. Yeah. Is there a is there a psychedelic either prevailing out there that or just that you know about that isn't getting the attention that you think it deserves? Um. Yeah. So there's. Yeah, there's actually like, 
most people don't know there's like hundreds of psychedelic compounds out there. Um, you know, there's a few that are most well known, but uh, a ton that have really not been studied at all yet. Um, many by this chemist um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, whose name Alexander Shulgin. He lived um, just a few miles actually from where I'm sitting right now. He had a home laboratory um, in Lafayette here in the East Bay. And yeah, there, there is where he created MDMA, his most famous uh, molecule. Um, he also created 2CB and um, a bunch of other um, psychedelic molecules as well that he and his wife, um, Ann Shulgin, tested. And she was a psychotherapist. And um, so that's kind of how the whole MDMA psychotherapy started. Mm -hmm. He created MDMA and he gave it to his wife and she incorporated it into her, her therapy practice. And then um, she was, you know, a pretty prominent psychotherapist in the 70s here in the Bay Area. And then it kind of disseminated from there. Um, but so I go on a tangent there. But yeah, so now Shul Alexand Alexander and Ann and Shulgin are now passed away, but they um, have left what's called the, what's called the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, which is you know designed to you know carry out study into his molecules, and so um, lots of those are going to going to be begin being tested soon. I hope to be involved in some of those studies. Kind of been talking to them a little bit, but we'll see where that goes. Uh, so lots of those still to be studied um, in terms of the classic psychedelics. That includes LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and mescaline. You know, mescaline seems to be like the very most understudied so far in this modern era of research, um, probably because it lasts so long and makes it very not mm. pragmatic to, to work around in a workday. Uh, you know, it can be like 12-hour sessions or longer, and um, also it can have, you know, gastrointestinal side effects, which aren't ideal, and... Um, yeah, it seems like psilocybin just, just is a little bit more pragmatic to work with. You know, it's four to six hour experience. Um, not too bad in terms of nausea when you don't take the actual fungus. You know, you just take a pill with psilocybin in it. And um, yeah, easy to do a, an eight hour workday with that. So yeah, right now I'd say mescaline and some of Shulgin's um, compounds definitely deserve some further study. I'm, I'd really be curious to study LSD more too, but it's the same issue as with mescaline. You know, it lasts like 12 hours. It's a little bit too long lasting. And, um, you know, you have to have research assistants there a couple hours before dosing a couple mm. hours after dosing. So it's just really not very practical and doesn't really seem to have benefits that we know of at least, um, relative to just using psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe moving out to the Midwest will help because everything's so much cheaper out here. Yeah. You know, 50,000, 50, I think goes much further out here than it does in the Bay. Bay that's very that's true. like, that's like a lunch. You drive 10 miles and find parking and you know, you're already like 20,000 in debt. Literally. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wild out there. Um, yeah. The, uh, to that. yeah, the reduced cost of living out there back in Michigan. Yeah. There, there's a, a TV series um, called Succession. I don't know if you're a fan of it, but the show writers said that they fundamentally don't think that personality or like people change. Like there's like kind of like that Doctor House. I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show either, but yeah, uh, throw my references out there. Where they, they like there's people who think that people don't change over time, which I think is weird because people clearly change over time if you just right. watch them. But uh, what do you think is about psychedelics that allows people to change? when it comes to their brain chemistry. And I think that illustrates what the brain can do. It's not so much like the psychedelic itself, but I think what, what about the brain is able to change like that? And what about psychedelics allows it to change? And then yeah. I'm just thinking about these people successions, like, um, like mood and behaviors change differently. I wonder if personality changes as well. 
Yeah, it's a great question. It's really the the million dollar question right now. You know, why are these why are these molecules in this therapy paradigm seem to be effective for so many different things in terms of making people change? You know, that seems to be at the core of of all these different trials. You know, they help people change psychologically. You know, what what's driving that? Um, you know, it's 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 not exactly known. You know, we have a lot of different theories. You know, ranging from you know, molecular to network level in the brain to just purely psychological theories um, for for this process. Um, you know, we do know that you know psychedelics engage and agonize or cause activity at what's known as the serotonin two A receptor, five HT two A receptor, uh, which is pretty widely distributed in the brain, but most commonly um, found in the more newer parts of the brain in terms of evolution, the more frontal cortex. And we know that the 2A receptor um, seems to be very important for plasticity, you know, which is the ability for the brain to make changes in response to changes in the environment. You know, uh, when new environmental demands come up, we need to be able to adapt. And um, so that seems to be at the very heart of this, you know, change mechanism, quote unquote, is that they agonize these 2A receptors. Um, and agonism of these 2A receptors leads to, you know, Dysregulate, dysregulated, hierarchically organized um, interactions in the brain. And, you know, we see that, you know, brain regions that typically aren't talking to another are talking to another um, more than they were before. And there seems to be increased, you know, connectivity and flexibility in the brain. And so, um, you know, these deeply ingrained patterns of behavior that people have been really had, had a really hard time getting out of, you know, they can suddenly um, oftentimes look at it from a different perspective in a different way. And, um, you know, have insights and those insights seem to be very meaningful. You know, that seems to be a characteristic effect of psychedelics is that they make things seem very meaningful and very important. Mm. Um, and that that can really seems to be an important mechanism in, you know, traditional psychotherapy as well. You know, you want people to have insights that feel very important and make them um, make changes in their lives. So yeah, you can, you can explain it in a lot of different ways, at a lot of different levels, starting at, you know, just the very strictly cellular molecular level and building up into, to the, the network and brain level into more psychological mechanisms. And, you know, depending on your, your disposition or your orientation, you know, you'll probably be more likely to explain it using one of those other, one of those, one of those methods, you know, um, a biologist or, you know, mm -hmm. a cellular neuroscientist, or whatever is going to probably focus on those more lower level mechanisms and a, a psychologist like myself will probably focus on more those higher level mechanisms. Is there um, is there a pet theory that you have or pet hypothesis that you'd want to test out? Um, um, do you mean in terms of like how they work or just like any, yeah. um, how, how they work, but if you don't have a pet theory there, but any thought of something else, I'm willing to divert. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess not at the moment um, in terms of mechanism. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I feel like probably in a couple of years here. Yeah, I feel like I'm still still building up the infrastructure mm -hmm. in the brain to, to put that together. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I have it. I don't think I have it yet. Um, yeah. But yeah, in terms of you know, future ideas, you know, um, so much to, to uncover here still in the field. You know, it's very early days, relatively, um, you know, it's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And, you know, basically, there's been no research on the psychotherapy component yet, you know, what makes the contextual factors around the psychedelic drug administration, you know, work and what doesn't work necessarily, you know, we've, 
typically in all these, you know, trials, we've manipulated the drug between the two groups, but we've never manipulated, you know, the surrounding contacts, which is surprising because, you know, psychedelics are supposed to be very sensitive to context. And, you know, and we all say that, you know, the surrounding psychotherapeutic in intervention and in context is important and uh, what makes it work, but, you know, we don't really put that to the test ever. So um, lots to, to systematically still study in that area. Um, you know, really interested in studying how to predict reactions. Like I talked to a little bit, talked about a little bit already, you know, how do we figure out who these drugs, you know, lead to good experiences with versus, you know, bad or even traumatic experiences in some cases. Um, that's an interesting area of study. Um, and um, one other thing that's really intrigued me is the, you know, the tendency for people to report feeling more connected to nature or, you know, the universe, mm. even people more broadly um, after powerful psychedelic experiences. And that really intrigues me as well. So um, I want to study that some more. Um, and at Michigan, at University of Michigan, I'm going to be working at the Michigan Psychedelic Center, as well as the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center. Mm. So we'll be um, evaluating the the therapy for people with chronic pain. So a lot of different directions yeah. there that I'm interested in. Yeah, very, um, not yeah, related it's... to one another, but yeah, there's so much to, to go through in this field still to, to uncover. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there uh, anything that suggests that psychedelics would have an effect on fatigue and chronic pain? I, I Yeah, it makes me think as well, tying to the first thing we talked about, which is like the war stopped the research of the gentleman who invented LSD and then nowadays we have the Afghanistan and Iraq wars that seems to be propelling uh, psychedelics. So it's kind of interesting if like, you know, pain management of some kind is also a, a component of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I would say, yeah, the the wars and subsequently the number of veterans we have that need you know, mental yeah. health treatment yeah, has facilitated this this movement for sure. Um, I also kind of wonder the degree to which, you know, kind of like the chaos over the last, you know, five, six, seven years has also kind of uh, let it slide under the rug a little bit. You know, like mm -hmm. it seems like the world's kind of been in turmoil. Everyone's kind of agreed since like 2016 or so. I don't know. Um, and so, there's, you know, especially during the, you know, um, you know, the Trump presidency, you know, it seems like every day there was just, you know, outlandish headlines coming out. And so I think, you know, when you have 10 crazy headlines and then the psychedelic therapies being studied kind of slides in there at number nine or 10 or whatever people, you know, I think there's a a limit on the number, the amount of outrage people have, and they can only direct it into so many different directions. And so I think that also um, kind of helps psychedelic therapy. Um, yeah, so it's on the radar. Through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then at that, eventually, it gained so much momentum that it was hard to stop. Yeah, that is, it was being done at these top research institutes like Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, and suddenly it's a billion dollar industry, and that's that's really hard to stop more than anything. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I think, yeah, those are interesting factors to consider. But uh, yeah, going back to the main question of, mm -hmm. you know, can these be effective for chronic pain? Um, you know, we, it remains to be seen, but we do know that, you know, one's mood and mental state, their psychological state has very dynamic interactions with your pain, such that, you know, improving depression and mood also improves people's pain. And, you know, unsurprisingly, having worse pain also makes your depression and anxiety worse. So, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, we know that there's these reciprocal relationships between mood and pain and that psychedelics seem to have potential for treating mood symptoms. So we're hoping that, you know, if we can, you know, improve the psychological aspect or yeah, 
psychological component for these patients that, you know, in turn that um, their pain might reduce, you know, we don't think that they're going to be strictly analgesic, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a traditional sense, you know, we're not, we're not going to be like ibuprofen where you take a psychedelic and your pain goes away. But we think that, you know, having a couple of high dose sessions, um, having these transformative experiences and subsequent changes in mood can be helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, also, you know, people have a lot of heart, often have a hard time accepting their pain, you know, and grappling with it. And um, psychedelics seem to have potential for, you know, like I said, changing how people think about themselves and chronic health conditions more broadly. You know, we've um, had these pre-positive findings in the cancer patients. And um, even here at UCSF, they did a study before I got here on um, AIDS survivors, AIDS survivors with demoralization. And, you know, they were going to, you know, you know, make their AIDS go away or anything, but, you know, they could, um, you know, help improve, you know, how they manage their, their pain and their relationship with their chronic health condition. And so those are the kinds of things that we're hoping to, to tap into with the psychedelic therapy for chronic pain. Let's see. Oh, I hate it when a sneeze is coming and someone's talking. It's like, well, what? how am I going to edit this out? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it in. People, people can make fun of me, but, yeah. uh, but thankfully I heard everything. Um, Great. <laughs> do people when they're, uh, in a going through a psychedelic therapy, do they experience pain? Um, like physical pain? Do you mean? Or? Yeah, yeah. Like if, like if, 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 like, let's say my leg, I don't know, I had surgery on it, and I forgot to take my drugs or whatever, and I took had a psychedelic thing. Would I be so focused on what's going on in my head that I wouldn't notice it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there are reports of people you know, having um, acute reductions in pain while they're under the, the influence of a psychedelic, you know, there hasn't been good systematic research on it, but there are mm-hmm. anecdotes of people saying that, you know, like, oh, during the psilocybin trip, my pain completely, completely went away. Um, and there are and actually relatedly, um, there's a lot of people who use um, like low doses of psilocybin for things like chronic head- headaches and migraines. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, I don't know how it works. I don't even know like the theories necessarily, but there's actually pretty, um, you know, a pretty vocal group of people, they're called cluster busters who say, um, <laughs> I'm Googling that. <laughs> yeah. We've used psilocybin to break our cluster headaches and it works. It helps. Yeah. Um, and there's mm. been a lot of, not a lot, a couple of studies out of Yale so far that have helped that verified that and have worked with that team. So don't, I don't even know. I can't even begin to speculate on the mechanism of why that seems to help, but yeah, it seems to help people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty wild. Um, yeah, yeah. When I first heard that and that people were studying psychedelics for chronic pain, I was like, I didn't really believe it. And I thought it was kind of like, kind of like the cannabis craze where everybody was talking mm. about like the panacea, where like it's going to cure every everything, you know, every psychiatric disorder and even physical disorders now too. Um, and, you know, I was very skeptical at first, but, you know, like I said, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. You know, we're not trying to make new analgesics that'll make pain go away, but we're trying to help people, you know, grapple with their pain differently with this therapy and to improve their mood and their depression. And, um, in turn, hopefully they can live with their pain a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, so a, a, a little bit ago, you discussed how you went to the Shulgin, uh, lab in San Francisco. And it made me think of how, uh, John Steinbeck, which I don't know if people are familiar with this author, but like Mice and Men, uh, Grips of Wrath, et cetera, which is, Quite frankly, I guess it's like saying, do you know who J.R.R. Tolkien is? He's like a very famous author. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) at one stage of his life, him and his dog went around America, just like went all over America and visited different grounds that were very significant to him. Do you have interest to go to the different labs 
uh, throughout America, like you know, throughout the world, who work, who are working and carrying the torch for psychedelics, kind of like, kind of like a John Steinbeck. You need a dog, of course, or, or something. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you need a man's best friend. But uh, <laughs> would you be interested in something like that? I know, That's I know. So- uh, based on your Twitter stuff, you've been to Shulgin like recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's pretty close here. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that though. It's just this week I was like I was going for a walk and I was plotting out this idea. I even wrote it in my note app mm. on my phone of an academic tour. <laughs> like um me getting a like some kind of van or, you know, trailer kind of thing that I could just go around in and, you know, I could give talks at universities <laughs> and I love camping and traveling and seeing mm. the world and stuff. So that that really appealed to me. Yeah, and I was just thinking about it. I was like, oh, I guess I have some colleagues in Florida Louisiana, Alabama, I could do like a deep south tour. <laughs> I could do like a Midwest one and a New England one. So yeah, it's actually something I was just thinking about this week. Um hmm. yeah, I think that there's been a couple of researchers who have done something kind of like that. Um, you know, coming out to the Bay Area, stopping at all the, the big stops and you know hitting the East Coast and going to Hopkins and Harvard and Yale and all that. So yeah, it's something I'm definitely thinking about. Um, especially next year when i start the new job because it seems like a lot of my work will be remote to begin with mm. right now even like 90 percent of my work is remote except for on dosing days and um yeah those are kind of few and far between it's just so much to schedule and like i mm-hmm. said there's so much built up that goes into uh, that goes into place in anticipation of those dosing sessions so yeah definitely something i'm curious about since i'm i work remotely so much yeah yeah i think starlight the spacex uh web uh internet uh is now mobile you can go you can you can mount that thing on top of a a, a mobile home or whatever they're called <laughs> this is uh, so funny this is such a timely conversation yeah, yeah i was just thinking yeah, about they, this yeah i think it's literally this week too i i, I um, i've i've really liked the idea uh there's a similar idea like for me for like podcasting or like meeting people and like doing science stuff but uh, i like the idea of like I don't know to the extent I'm maybe like I'm polluting this idea that you have, but uh, I wonder if you had like a convoy of scientists and it was like over like three months where like there was like where it was scheduled out so you could go and see everything. And at each different different one, there was like a uh, like symposium of speakers that talked about that institution's role in, in research and psychedelics, like what's going on right now. And so you just have like a convoy of people just deeply interested in the field. <laughs> they just like they just loop America. They're pretty cool. Amazing. That'd be so yeah. fun. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, tour bus too. Yeah. All yeah. The psychedelic yeah. researchers. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, it brings to mind. Um, you know, something I've been thinking about lately, which is that it, it almost seems like there could be a psychedelic researcher in any academic department at a university, you know, or somebody interested in psychedelics at any academic, you know, in biology department, chemistry department, psychology department, politics, you know, political science, um, art, music, you know, it, mm-hmm. the psychedelics kind of intersect with um, many different areas of humanity. It seems like it's hard to imagine a department that couldn't have, you know, a psychedelic researcher. So, yeah. <laughs> It seems like yeah, something, something like a tour like that could definitely have a lot of appeal and you know draw out a lot of people, a lot, big crowd. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, found, oh, it's that. No, go ahead. I was. Yeah, I've definitely found in my talks, you know, about psychedelics that they they draw quite a crowd compared to when I was going around talking about you know attention bias research, a cognitive psych stuff that you know most people had no had never heard of before. So yeah, I could definitely see that being a, a cool idea. Yeah, it, you know, uh, you could sell it as like a mobile Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know depending on the uh you know i don't know 
depending on like the legality of different places you could like uh do the surveys in person i guess um yeah I'm told, yeah there's I, a I'm told people do uh, stuff like that at Burning the Man. Once again, I am boring and I do not go to these things, but I, <laughs> this I would go to for the learning, for the science of it. No, this is great. Yeah, I've never been to Burning Man either, but I guess it'd be interesting to observe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a, in Ann Arbor, there's a, a festival every year called Entheo Fest. Apparently, mm. I, I haven't been yet, but um, I was told about it by the psychedelic researchers at University of Michigan. And yeah, they've started doing that very thing, actually. They've started giving surveys and stuff to people at EntheoFest about psychedelics, and they've actually started to publish some papers from that research, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if we get enough people uh, sign, anyone who messages and stuff, maybe we, we'll, we'll coordinate something. Once again, I feel like I'm taking over your idea. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we can start a convoy, which would be kind of nice, too, because, like, you can, like, travel, but then at the end of the day, you guys can, like, we can all find, like, a park, and just, like, hang out and, like, talk about stuff. I don't know. That'd be kind of fun. A great time. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, it's kind of like walking the Appalachian Trail, but uh, instead, like, in RVs <laughs> and just, you know, drive around America. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, have to look into this really though yeah yes uh well we could start like a gofundme or something i don't know like i don't right. know what what well uh it's more just like logistics of getting the other researchers and stuff on board but um uh, i think like a series of yeah series of conferences and then like i don't know now i'm, I'm thinking about how to do it like where we could raise money for nonprofits and stuff at the same time the, yeah um, that'd be awesome for, i bet we can find a handful of researchers interested in that yeah yeah the uh well everyone in the comments this is your vote <laughs> right. people say yes but i will spend my time and help uh, help set this up but uh for, <laughs> for you uh i think it'll just naturally come from your, your interest to travel the, uh, <laughs> when you when you went to the shulgin grounds did uh did you see anything that surprised you as as a researcher who's been studying these things for so long? There's something there that's just like, oh, that's that's weird, or like that's interesting, or that's uh, that's something I'm going to take home with me. Yeah, um, hopefully not literally stealing is bad. Yeah, you know, they did actually give us a little <laughs> cactus to take home, which is really oh, cool. that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's all kinds of cacti that they grow along the grounds there mm. that um, some are mescaline containing, some are not. I'm not actually sure if mine has any in it or not. Um, yeah, but there's actually um, you know, mescaline containing cacti are very legal. They're found all over California and gardens all over my neighborhood and everything. Actually, most people just don't know that they contain mescaline in them. Um, uh, yeah, I guess, I don't know. What did I take away from the Shulgin experience? It just was really meaningful to me, you know, mm -hmm. just to think about, you know, that this, that was the location that, you know, he synthesized all these molecules and like, just think, just to think about how much, you know, um, you know, snowballed out of what he did there. It was yeah. just really incredible and special. Yeah, especially just this with MDMA in particular, you know, there's just so many people who have who have been, you know, healed with MDMA therapy and who have really been helped. And, you know, a lot of people have just had a lot of fun with MDMA at concerts and raves and stuff, of course. And um kind of just just cool to think about, you know, how much his actions in that place, you know, impacted so many different people. You know, of course, you always have to remember the downsides as well and that you know people you know also have died from his molecules and have had ne very negative experiences as well and um to keep that in mind as well but yeah um generally it was just you know it just seemed like a very historic place and yeah very special to be at yeah is there is there like a uh, like a top five in your head as i guess this is timely for i can ask this question like is <laughs> there uh like a top five places you'd want to go that's a good question I would, yeah i'd say shogun's lab might be near the top yeah um uh it'd be interesting to go to to switzerland and to go um to where hoffman first uh synthesized lsd as well i'm not even sure if that's an option or if there's anything they're commemorating that even um 
but that would be an interesting place. Um, um, yeah, I'm blanking. I, I guess. was watching I a I was watching a Vice interview where they went to like a volcano where a guy made LSD or something. There's like a guy who made LSD or psychedelics inside of a like a like on the side of a volcano. I wish I, I remember that. the names. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> not familiar. Yeah, um, but there and yeah, it would definitely be you know interesting to visit the Hopkins group and to see their mm-hmm. lab. You know, just given that that's been a very you know very impactful lab as well and you know there's so much that has come out of just the early psilocybin work that they did there um rick strasman in new mexico as well you know um his dmt research kind of opened the door for the hopkins group to do their psilocybin studies so i'd love to to meet him and to, to tour his lab at some point um and i guess other than that I'm sure there, it seems like there's something I'm very obviously missing, but I would say those mm-hmm. are the big ones for now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if there's uh if anyone knows of any like underground or lesser known researchers that, you know, are good to visit, you know, leave in the comments, maybe that we would add it to the map. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in your research, you discussed debunking uh, blue Mondays. And so for people who don't know what a blue Monday is, what is a blue Monday and how does it relate to clinical MDMA? Cause we just, we were recently talking about MDMAs and it reminds me that it was on my list. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So Blue Mondays are this phenomenon that have been reported for a while among recreational MDMA users, um, mm. where they take MDMA on the weekend and, you know, get high and have fun. And on Monday, feel blue, you know, <laughs> kind of mm. the come down after after the high. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's it's been so it's been talked about so much in MDMA culture that it has this term, even Blue Mondays. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, a lot of issues surrounding MDMA use, recreational MD, MDMA use that, you know, don't apply to MDMA use that's used clinically. And, you know, it, we were really wondering if, you know, some of these contextual factors around MDMA use um, in a recreational setting might account for the Blue Mondays more so than even the MDMA itself. Hmm. And so, for instance, when people take MDMA recreationally, um, you know, they buy it illicitly. It's often cut with other substances. Um, sometimes it doesn't even contain MDMA at all. And people often, when they take MDMA, also combine it with alcohol and marijuana and other substances as well. Um, again, kind of clouding the picture of the source yeah. of Mondays. Um, probably most critically, when people take Monday recreationally on the weekend, they do it at night, right? Um, they're not doing it the middle of the day or in the morning. They're doing it at night. They're taking an amphetamine at night. And so they stay up all night. Um, they don't get sleep. You know, they're dancing, they're raving, they're sweating. Um, they're oftentimes not drinking enough water. And so it's not surprising in the days following that they kind of feel crappy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what we were wondering is if, you know, if we give MDMA that's pure, you know, it's sourced from, a, you know, a regulated laboratory, it's, you know, 99.9% MDMA as pure as you can get it. Um, they don't take it with alcohol or other drugs. They don't take it at night while they're dancing and they're raving and sweating and exhausting themselves. Um, they take it during the day in a therapy session. And, you know, in that context, do we still see Blue Mondays was the question of this paper. And um, what we found was that, no, um, th- this is a small sample. I forget exactly how many participants, like 10 or 12 or something like that, but pretty small. But at least in this small sample of participants who were given clinical MDMA, they did not show evidence of, of Blue Mondays. And so 
So the yeah, the point of the paper was to highlight that there are a lot of you know contextual factors that go into recreational MDMA MDMA use that might account for these um, so-called Blue Mondays. I think I think the title was um, a little bit too strong. I think we should have reworded that. I think debunking was a very uh, very strong word to use for a small sample open label study. So if I could go back, I would I would change the title of that paper to be um, a little bit more conservative. Uh, but overall, mm-hmm. I, I hope I hope the paper highlights that yeah, that or gets people to think about you know the factors that might go into Blue Mondays beyond Blue Mondays beyond just the MDMA because there are a lot of, of other things going on. Yeah, and I I felt like it was pretty. You know, like like written like a scientist, like you like you you know you, you covered the bases pretty well. Like, uh, and it's it's I I think uh, it was an, an unfair title, but I also understand the concern with being uh, accurate as a scientist. Thanks. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What um what is Perry Hand space, and what is why is it significant to psychedelics? Yeah, so I don't know that it interacts with psychedelics at all. Um, it was kind of my previous area of research before I got into mm. psychedelics. Um. So perihand okay. space is the the area immediately surrounding the hand, and mm. um, we have you know specific neurons in the brain that respond to this space, and we actually treat it very special in terms of our attention and perception, and even how we represent it in the brain. Um, and so, what we see is that there are intention attentional enhancements for stimuli stimuli that occur near your hand space, and it's thought to um, facilitate, you know, um, interactions with things in the nearby space. And so, uh, my, my initial research when I was beating my PhD was focused on delineating characteristics of that peri hand space. You know, what are the cognitive changes that occur when people attend to that space? Um, and as well as peripersonal space, which is the, the base, the space surrounding your body more broadly okay. that you could interact with. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. The, um, then, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, the brain's ability to rewire, to adapt and change and psychedelics effect on that. Mm. And someone with a show called Learn With All, I'm going to definitely ask about, you know, learning. Is there a way that psychedelics could like juice learning in terms of making it so that people can learn faster, more deeply on a subject? Or would it or would you get stuck in like state dependent learning issues? It's a great <laughs> question. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a tantalizing question for researchers in the field right now. Um, you know, because, yeah, like, given this kind of theoretical model that we've developed, you know, psychedelics increase neuroplasticity, the ability for the brain to adapt to change in the environment. When you put um, psychotherapy in that environment, you know, the psychotherapy essentially becomes supercharged. The people are more flexible and open to it, mm-hmm. um, integrate things better. And so, yeah, the thinking then is, could you put other things in that container, right, beyond psychotherapy? Um, and I think there is some very tentative knowledge or research that just came out in the last year or so mm-hmm. year or so um on lsd um improving reinforcement learning or something like that which i really didn't dig into the details of um but it's definitely something that people are starting to think about and starting to design studies for you know there's this period of neuroplasticity after the administration of a psychedelic can you embed other things so that people learn them better or incorporate them into their lives um more su- more successfully. So for instance, one thing we're curious about studying is exercise. You know, if we get people to start exercising um the day after a psychedelic experience, does it stick better? Do they commit mm. to it more because they're in this, you know, kind of in this state where they're open to change? Are they is that something that could be 
um, useful. But yeah, and so, yeah, it's something I think that's going to be kind of investigated in this coming decade. What other things can we stick into this container? And um, do they do they stick more successfully after um, a psychedelic experience compared to some kind of placebo control? Yeah. Is there early stages? Yeah. Is there any evidence that there's any neuroregeneration or actual uh, physical changes in the brain? Like, does it does it spur? Like, if I like, I'm just imagining like taking it to where I'm thinking that if I if I wonder to what extent if there was damage to the brain, if psychedelics would do anything that would potentially uh, alleviate or like work around the damage. I think the there's been some studies that like PTSD, for instance, you can literally MRI and see the changes in the brain. And so yeah. if you're alleviating that, I imagine that to some extent you are able to do something to the brain in that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's evidence, like you mentioned, that there's atrophy of neurons specifically in, you know, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus with things like PTSD. And it's actually kind of a common feature among psychiatric disorders that there's atrophy of neurons in the prefrontal cortex and the the medial prefrontal cortex in particular. And, you know, what's interesting is those 2A receptors that I referred to earlier that psychedelics, you know, primarily agonize. Um, they're very much found in the medial prefrontal cortex. And mm. um, so that's, yeah, um, something to, to, to look into in the future. I know that there's been animal studies showing increased neurogenesis and things like that, um, at least in rats and um, in preclinical models as, or like cellular molecular models as well. Uh, but I don't know that anyone's demonstrated, you know, the growth of new neurons and things like that in humans with psychedelics. And actually it's kind of a contentious bait for, neuroscience more generally is you know do people keep growing new neurons throughout their life you know it's it's kind of the the answer that's kind of tilted back and forth over time yes no yes no uh, but um we do know that that you know strikes psychedelics definitely cause um you know functional changes in brain activity you know long after the acute effects um i wrote a a systematic review in 2020 in the long-term effects of psychedelics. And at that time, there had not been a single long-term neuroimaging study out um, mm. on psychedelics, which is really surprising to me. And one of the things that I highlighted in the discussion of that paper, uh, but in the last few years, there has been a couple papers that have come out um, on the long-term brain effects of psychedelics and um, pr primarily from Robin Carhart Harris's group, um, which was at Imperial College London. It's now here at UCSF. Um, in the Johns Hopkins group as well. I'm I'm thinking if the psychedelics have the effect of making it with people who've had injuries or have cancer, making it easier for them to accept it and go with the healing, whether it is accepting their uh, untimely death or uh, the pain or whatever they're going through. I right. wonder it, to what extent, I think one of the biggest things that happens after a TMI, a, yeah, TMI, it's a TMI, traumatic brain yeah. injury, oh, yeah. T, TBI. There we go. Yeah, sorry, I was thinking TMS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TBI. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of the biggest things that happens after a TBI is that like people. I mean, obviously you're gonna be like pretty depressed. Like, oh, I've lost function. You know, all these different things. I wonder if you if there was a study that went in there to uh, see how it would help them with just like feeling better so they could recover faster. Like, you know, the motivation on it. And then at the same time, we can scan their brain and see, right. <laughs> and see if we can uh, you know juice it that way. But I think the the the, the problem with that is like uh, with clinical studies, you'd like to study one thing at a time and be as clean about it as possible. So uh, muddy in the waters in that way, while fun, interesting in terms mm -hmm. of its ability to potentially help people in a, in a powerful way, uh, probably would be not the best in terms of scientific research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 the issue. You have to like select one thing and carefully isolate yeah. it and study it. Yeah, exactly.
Um, but I know that there are companies that are starting to look into, you know, psychedelics and TBI. And I know Hopkins group is doing a study of, um, you know, psilocybin therapy for people with Alzheimer's and dementia thinking, you know, it, it's also, they also have depression and anxiety, kind of the same approach that we're doing. You know, we treat the anxiety and depression. We'll see if their, their other symptoms improve in turn. Cause there was such a interrelationship between, you know, your mood and your, um, your cognition and like we also said earlier, your pain and your, your bodily feelings as well. Yeah. <laughs> do we do we have any hypotheses or ideas on to why for many mental illnesses, like you mentioned earlier, seem to have uh, a regulatory change in the prefrontal cortex, which is I, I believe prefrontal is where decision happens, where a lot of sentience exists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 there's so many different processes that have been related to the prefrontal cortex. But yeah. yeah, yeah, primarily, like you said, um, like attention, decision making, kind of more higher level processes that are uh, more specific to humans and how we think and um, navigate the world. Uh, I don't know, to be honest, you know, why the prefrontal cortex is related to so many psychiatric disorders specifically. Um, you know, it probably is related to like what you said, you know, it's it's important to how people think about the world and navigate themselves in the world, but it's, it's a very hand wavy and broad yeah. statement, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess my answer would be, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Are there, when it comes to brain computer interfaces, for instance, such as Neuralink or Paradromics, are you interested in them as a, like to what extent do you have interest in them in understanding the brain better so you can better research psychedelics? Yeah, I don't know too much about human computer interfaces, um, specifically myself. Um, I have written a paper on psychedelics and virtual reality, which seems like mm -hmm. a related um, space to talk about. Um, you know, talking about, you know, how there's just a lot of parallels among psychedelics and VR, and there's a lot of potential synergistic applications as well. So in terms of parallels, you know, they both obviously alter your sensory experience. Um, they can both be used to evoke strong experiences of awe, um, they're also both used um, in combination with mental health treatments. You know, um, VR is a nice little supplement to use in exposure therapy. You know, you can expose mm -hmm. people to things that they're afraid of without, you know, actually putting them in any danger um, or actually in the environment. And so, yeah, there's a lot of parallels among psychedelics and VR. And I think that perhaps VR could be a useful tool in the toolkit for psychedelic therapists, you know, one by, you know, People have developed simulations of psychedelic experiences that people can experience in VR, you know, that are supposed to approximate, you know, what you would see with your eyes closed on psychedelics um, that could you know, potentially help people prepare for the experience, maybe take some anxiety and worry off of people, especially for people who've never had a very, you know, dramatic shift in their perception and sense of altered sense of consciousness. And so I think that could be helpful. Um, and then during therapy sessions, you know, People are in, at least at the moment, people are taking them in laboratories and hospitals, very kind of sterile, mm. non-natural environments. And people, when they take psychedelics, often want to immerse themselves in nature. Um, and of course, you know, VR doesn't really immerse oneself in nature, but it could at least be used to, to simulate some nature scenes and um, to, you know, gives some people some exposure to to nature you know in the environments or in the the dosing rooms right now we you know we have paintings on the wall of nature scenes and um murals and things like that but this would be a much more you know obviously intense and immersive uh method of experiencing that and so 
like VR could be useful there. And then other people have posited that, you know, if you use VR during the session, during the psychedelic session, it might be helpful, you know, for integration later, if you can, you know, do the integration in that same VR environment. Um, I really totally understand that argument, but yeah, some people have put that forth. Um, um, and yeah, so I guess those would be the, the main parallels right now. You know, it's very hard to find things to patent in the psychedelic space. You know, it's very difficult to patent psychotherapy and, you know, you can't patent psilocybin itself. It's been around forever. Um, so people, you know, been kind of looking for things that they can make money off of in the psychedelic space, essentially. And so VR is one thing where they're like, hey, that's um, something that's very easy that we can de develop you know, intellectual property around and to use in combination with the therapy. So I, I think companies are are very interested in developing technologies and things like that, that we can use as adjuncts to psychedelic therapy. But um, in terms of the research, not much has really been done yet in that space. I think there's a group in the Netherlands that's doing DMT and VR together or something like that. But I don't know, I don't know the specifics of the study, but but yeah, yeah um, generally we're very much at the early stages of that too. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, like there's like two sides of it where it's like oh it sucks that you know there's not more money flowing into it on the other hand the guy who developed insulin gave it up for a buck and look at those little shits and what they did to it uh, right. so maybe <laughs> maybe it's good to leave it to the scientists and the 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 clinicians to develop something for the be betterment of mankind yeah um, we're, we're talking about sight i'm wondering is there a difference between someone who's blind and who, someone who's not in terms of their experience and what they visualize under the influence of a psychedelic yeah yeah, it's a good question. Um, not much has been done on that recently, uh, but in the first era of research during the 50s and 60s, I think they gave, there was a couple papers that where they gave psychedelics to people who were blind. And I think what they found was that people who were blind at birth didn't have any type of visual effect or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Those who, you know, develop blindness through some kind of like ocular damage to their eye or something like that, they still had the, you know, the... The neural architecture there to support visual processing and so they um still they think they were able to experience some visual effects um um if they you know developed their blindness later in life yeah mm. but still i don't think it was still it was um you know as immersive or um you know salient as it would be for someone who wasn't blind i think what i remember reading from the anecdotes and reports is that you know they'd see flashes of light and little dots of light and things like mm. that yeah but it'd be interesting then, yeah i'm sure there's people naturalistically using psychedelics right now who are blind yeah so it'd be interesting to do a more modern survey study yeah yeah um maybe, maybe during the the convoy uh conference the, the, we, we can have some people who uh will be there we can survey the, uh, but yeah for i always ask people about books and uh when i was doing my research you uh, i found that you recommended american trip and so yeah, right. so this is like so I like the two-parter here, which I normally don't get to ask because most people don't have like a list somewhere, but what about American Trip makes it a mesh read? And then part two of that question is, what other books would you recommend people check out? Tell to me psychedelic related. Uh, I like to read, so I'm always looking for new things to read. Yeah, absolutely. So I think American Trip is great because um, it, it really balances the hype and the hysteria. You know, it really takes a very, I feel like, sterile look at the history mm. of psychedelics and very very removed and unbiased in my opinion, you know, um, very much just focusing on, you know, how are, how have, how have psychedelics been used in so many different ways? You know, they've been studied for mind control by the CIA, CIA. they've been studied for, 
um, inducing psychosis and early psychedelic researchers causing psychosis. They've been studied to cure or treat mental illness. They've been um, used to, you know, inspire people's art and music. Um, you know, the, the, the psychedelics are very much like a chemical jester. I think he says, they, you know, they, they can be anything to anyone. And that mm. um, really is really, is really interesting. And um, his explanation is that the contextual factors around psychedelic use are really important. Your expectations, the setting, your intentions um, are just the critical factors in, um, you know, in what the outcome is. And so I think that's just really fascinating. And I think it, it pulls together and really ties together a lot of different areas of psychedelic research that seem kind of disparate and don't make sense, but within this framework kind of um, converge and make sense to me. So I don't know, like it was just, um, a, a really, really good book that just um, did a good. It, he also is very well read in the history, which you know a lot of modern psychedelic researchers neglect that. Which I mm. and you, I'm sure as well, um, don't appreciate so much. Um, you know, especially, you know, I think psychedelic researchers they kind of take it for granted. You know, what a lucky opportunity! Like, there's a whole generation of people that did this exact thing already. Why would you not try to learn? You know. Um, the pitfalls and what made it work, um, mm -hmm. the perils and pitfalls, and as well as what made it work the first time. So, you know, that's it's a very unique opportunity. Most researchers don't get to have previous generation who studied like the exact same thing, basically. And so, I really like that he focuses in on the history. Um, I'm just gonna take a look at my bookshelf here to see what else pops out um, for recommendations. I definitely recommend. How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. That's kind of like the, the go-to psychedelic book. Um, came out in like 2018 or so and really... Is that a Netflix TV show now too? I feel like How yeah, to Change yeah, Your Mind. Yep, yeah, yeah. There's a little docu-series on Netflix about that too where um, he's interviewed and a lot of psychedelic researchers are interviewed. Um, it's very much the most you know popular book in the modern era of psychedelic research, but I think it does a very good job of explaining... You know what psychedelics are, what the history are, what the history is again. How do they work? And you know, you know, where is the future going? A lot's changed since 2018, but I think a lot of it still holds up pretty well. Um, and then the last one, if I had to pick one other, <laughs> um, "Sacred Knowledge" by um, mm. Bill Richards at um, Johns Hopkins is also pretty interesting. It really focuses more on like the spiritual and the um, you know, the religious applications of psychedelics, which is fascinating to me. I, next one I have in my to read list is the immortality key is um, on a related note. I really want to read that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the, I have like 10 pages left. I've liked it so far. It is fantastic. Okay. Even, okay. The, the fun thing about books like that, which give you a different lens on the history of us as a species where it's like, it could be wrong, but it's, it, what a great thought hypothesis to think right. about. It's <laughs> so yeah, stimulating like, to think about. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's interesting. And I think sometimes there's like a, I think there's a term like cultural relativism where we look, we look at the past and we assume it's people today transported then would do the same thing. It's like, it's entirely different. Like a Roman Republic means something entirely different than an American Republic. Like that's, yeah. it's like, yeah. So I enjoy stuff like that. It's, it's, fun, it would, it's fun just on that principle, but there might be even greater things there. I, I highly recommend it. I think you'll enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'll definitely ensure that i do that next on my list then yeah that sounds absolutely yeah. fascinating yeah <laughs> definitely the kind of experience i like where you just kind of put yourself in a different world and try to think about it from their view yeah yeah and then uh for the future of you you know we talked about psychedelics we talked about your research i'm curious 
where do you want to go with your life in turn hopefully not giving you some existential dread here but <laughs> oh God, do, yeah. do, do, do you want to write a book do you want to be in a netflix documentary like what is what is your what is uh i don't know the next five ten years for you yeah for me um yeah i'll be going to michigan this summer in august and i'll uh I'll be a faculty member there, um, research investigator. So it's not a tenure track position. It's like two to three years of guaranteed funding. And then I'm kind of on my own after that. And like doing the, during those two to three years, I need to find money to, to, to support myself after the, that time. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, the Michigan, the chronic pain center is really good at getting the kind of grants and stuff that would need to do that. So I anticipate, you know, being able to stay at Michigan and hopefully become um, a professor there after after this two to three year period as a research investigator and um, develop a little bit more independence at that point and um, have my own laboratory and start um, mentoring postdocs of my own and graduate students of my own potentially. Um, I'd like to, you know, keep focusing on psychedelic research. I've done some teaching before, but I think um, primarily I I enjoy the research aspect of academia. and yeah, I've, it's definitely crossed my mind to write a book. Um, I've been thinking about it more and more, especially now, now that I've gotten to be involved in the actual clinical trials here. I feel like I have an interesting perspective kind of right from the inside of how it's all happening. So yeah, it's definitely something that's on my mind and I'd be open to, um, you know, just have to find the, the specific focus I'd want to narrow in on. Yeah. And beyond there, that, maybe the academic tour would be great. Yeah. There's a book up here called Lab Girl. And it's from the point of view of a, a woman being a, a research scientist. I think that would be an interesting template to apply to a book that you'd write from the inside with, okay. with your knowledge. I'd recommend checking out maybe Lab girl. not to, I, I think about me physically looking interrupted your thought, but I was just trying to oh, remember no, no, what no. it was called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I was able yeah. to get where I wanted to go with that. Yeah. I was curious. It was like, if there was some coming in or what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I was trying to like, cause I, I wanted to look to, to say it. Cause I think if with a, inside perspective lab girl really does give me the sense of what it's like to be a woman trying to be you know doing research not trying to be she was actually doing you know a great job um, right so i mean you're not a girl but at the same time like you know it, uh, inspirations can be taken. yeah <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah i'll definitely yeah. check that out. it'd be interesting yeah i'd love more um you know autobiographical science books like that yeah <laughs> yeah uh and as like a test because sometimes i think people wait to do things if you if you wonder like would anyone like what i'm writing you could try doing what andy weir did with the martian where you you post chapters online and then you let people's response to it dictate how you edit and change it that's why the martian is such a fast-paced book and movie it's because like people responded to it so he knew like how to kind of calibrate as he went um so (laughs) you could do like a web novel from the inside and I, i think there's such an interest for that like you could do like a newsletter or um uh I think it's overstack or substack or something like that. Like people will literally like, yeah, yeah, which may work to the interest in developing some more financial independence because people subscribe and they can be like patrons or whatever it's called where they pay you for the content. So not only are you potentially making content for a book, but you're also making content that people want kind of like a, like a pub, like a news reporter kind of. Yeah. Right. Substack. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really interesting. I'll have to think about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's such a cool model, kind of a choose your own adventure. <laughs> like people yeah. vote on where to go. Yeah, what would be most interesting to focus on? I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be a uh, first subscriber, the uh, beta test or whatever, because uh, this <laughs> stuff's very fascinating. And I, and, and uh, if, if you ever do do it, let me know and I'll update the show notes with it so that pe- uh, more people can find it. Thanks, but, I appreciate it. Do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and as a as a bonus last question, the uh, you made a, a tweet, and I'm just curious if I could get some clarification. It's about placebo effects. So, psilocybin assisted therapy for major depression disorder uh, is the the title of the paper you were commenting on. Is a mm-hmm. uh, and here's the the citation for you. Uh, increased focus on methylo- method meth oh what is wrong with me my tongue like the <laughs> methods the meth the methods the rigor of method thank you so much i don't know what's yeah, wrong with my mouth <laughs> the rigor of that <laughs> Man, it happen. Yeah, everyone's, happen. yeah like i don't i was saying philan- phil- philanthropy this weekend and it took me like two minutes <laughs> but but the but the use of an inert placebo uh microcrystal cellulose really compromises the effectiveness of all the other bells and whistles intended to improve the binding why would an inert placebo do anything to affect uh the rigor of yeah what did you mean by that like why would that why would that do anything yeah so yeah so when it comes to placebo conditions you can use yeah. um what are known as active placebos or inactive placebos or inert placebos. I guess I should have used inactive in that tweet, but you said inert. Um, um, and so active placebos confer some kind of effect that's supposed to trick you essentially um, that you receive the active drug. Whereas mm-hmm. an inactive placebo is just an empty pill, more or less a sugar pill that does nothing. Um, and my, yeah, microcrystalline cellulose would be considered an active placebo. It doesn't have psychoactive effects. Uh, which makes it a really poor control condition for a psychedelic, <laughs> wouldn't you think? <laughs> mm, <okay. laughs> Where the characteristic yeah. effect is um, uh, robust psychoactive changes. So, yeah, it's it's just really surprising that people are still using inactive placebos in this day and age because, you know, we know that psychedelics have very distinct identifiable psychoactive effects. And so... Um, what's going to happen is people that are assigned to the psilocybin condition are going to know that they were in the psilocybin condition. And those, um, assigned to the control condition are going to know that they're in the control condition, which really under undermines the entire purpose of doing a double blind randomized controlled trial. Right. Um, the reason we do those types of trials is to control for people's expectancies and their knowledge about, um, the, the treatment under study. Um, and so, you know, an SSRI SSRI trials, you know, you don't tell them if they got the study drug or the placebo. Um, and again, this is control for what people expect to happen. And that's particularly problematic with psychedelics because people have such inflated expectations right now about what they can do and what they might cure. And, um, you know, they're, you know, they're being bombarded with, you know, you know, front page covers of Newsweek and other media magazines saying this is the next Prozac, the next big antidepressant. And so people come into these trials with very inflated expectations and um, very much expecting to, to be cured of their disorder, mm-hmm. wherever that may be. And so, um, so yeah, when you have those heightened expectations and it's, and then they find out that they, they did indeed get the drug, you know, you can have a ro- very robust placebo effect, um, which we're very much trying to minimize in these trials. Yeah. Um, and conversely, if you you know have very hyped up expectations about psilocybin improving your depression, and it becomes obvious you've received the control condition, you're going to be very disappointed, right? And actually, and many times feel worse than if you hadn't even been in the trial at all. And this is known as the mm-hmm. nocebo effect, kind of the opposite of the placebo effect. And so, yeah, it's really important that researchers are rigorous about you know, what they're using as control conditions in these types of studies, because it really um changes the interpretability of the data that makes a lot of sense and i was thinking like how would you 
work around some elements of that. Like I, I think visually you could just have a V like a VR on it that like gives you like that you will either will you know give you nature like maybe trick you into thinking you're having an experience but then it yeah. wouldn't affect like the mood of it all like you you that would only be a visual like surface level placebo that wouldn't really cover all the bases so that you could it's, you know really affect it no that's very um 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 we're thinking of intuitive of you yeah it's much better than what most people have actually done yeah in terms of control <laughs> conditions yeah that's uh, um i like that idea yeah <laughs> is there ever been like a really silly control condition that you're surprised someone tried Without naming them, I guess. I don't want to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a very silly one. That's a good question. Um, a lot of people have used niacin, which just causes like a little bit of flushing in the face. And it's just like a, uh, a B vitamin, basically. It doesn't do anything. Um, um, this isn't necessarily a control condition, but one uh, group of researchers in Canada, they did a a kind of fake psilocybin study it's called tripping on nothing i think is the name on paper the name of the paper where they told people they were going to give them psilocybin and they set it all all up like it would be a typical psychedelic experiment um and they even had confederates come in you know fake participants who pretended they were tripping in on psilocybin as well to see if they could get uh these volunteers who they told they were given psilocybin but it was actually just a placebo to see if they could get like a psychedelic response in them to see if they actually experienced any visual effects or changes in mood and things like that. And over half the participants were actually tricked in that experiment. They actually thought that they got a psychedelic and um, mm. reported changes in their vision and things like that, even though they were just given a, a placebo pill and they were, um, it was all driven by context and expectancy and things like that. So yeah, it's um yeah, kind of one of the more, um, more interesting study designs. I think that's come out in the more recent years. Yeah. <laughs> That is interesting. Then I know we're we're going over, so uh, it's probably a good time to say thanks. The and just as a quick idea, if you want to do like Jacob uh, psychedelics a day, that makes sense. It just as a <laughs> newsletter title, <laughs> psychedelics like, that's a day. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Trademark. You have to give me a nickel. So yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I want I want to thank you so much for coming out today. Everyone listening, in, thanks for being here. The I think sometimes people assume that naturally progress will continue to progress and as we talked about today with history there was a big pause there's been a big uh, stymie in this field and there was times in america where we had amendments to the constitution banning substances granted alcohol is probably good to ban but in this <laughs> case we all have to kind of work together to see and support researchers like yourself um doing work to help people's lives improve you know these these veterans out there, these people who have had terrible, you know, terrible things happen to them as kids and stuff, uh, they deserve the best in terms of treatment to have healthy, happy lives. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. I want to thank everyone for listening and supporting uh, Jacob's work. Um, and just a huge thank you, Jacob, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. And yeah, I'd love to come back anytime.